Okay, Miss Cindy wanted me to announce that there's a kids activity today. They're going to be doing a service project in the back. And so if any of the kids, and it's okay with your parents, if you'd like to participate in that, Cindy's going back there right now. Looks like there's all kinds of fun crafts back on the table, so it should be fun today. In fact, if somebody wants to come up here, I might go do that and participate with Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, we, um, we love You. We, we come here today to, to worship You, to adore You, to listen to Your Holy Word, to what You have to show us in Scripture, to give our attention to these words so that we might see how our lives might be changed as a result of it. Lord, it's our desire that we would look more like Jesus today, that we would follow in His example and follow the the pattern of those that have come before us that have walked in faith and patience on this same journey that we're on today. And so I, I pray that, that this would be a part of that. That You would transform our, our minds. You transform our hearts. And that we would learn to be followers of Jesus this day through the instructions that You give to us. Please bless this time as we come to Your Word. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, you know, we've all seen good leaders and poor leaders throughout our experiences in the workplace, in uh, churches, in society. Uh, I once had a supervisor who was trying to motivate me to see things his way. And uh, he wasn't really being successful in persuading me of his thoughts and, and how he thought uh, things needed to happen. And so, uh, and so, in order to persuade me, and it wasn't happening through conversation, he decided to take an alternative approach. And so, his, um, his face in anger started to turn bright red. He started holding his breath. And then he turned away from me and he grabbed a push broom that was sitting next to him. And he grabbed it and he threw it across the factory. He launched it all the way across to the other, end of the, the other wall on the other side. And with fury, he let out a hearty, ah! And then he walked away. Needless to say, he, he still didn't persuade me. I had another boss who in the restaurant industry that ruled with fear. And every time he made a mistake, every time he rang in the wrong order, the cost of that steak would come out of your pay. Uh, when a mistake was made at the restaurant, he would take away your shift and he'd give it to somebody else. Often, uh, one time when I refused to throw one of my coworkers under the bus so that they would take the blame for a mistake that several people made, um, my boss decided to reduce the number of tables that I would wait on for a month and thus reduce my entire pay by a third. You know, I saw many people fired on a weekly basis from their job because the stress and, and the, the fear only led them to make more mistakes than they normally would have made. But we've also had the opposite of that, haven't we? Hopefully. Hopefully we've had bosses that have been better than that. There are good leaders who lead by serving and we've seen how their, their expectations and their standards remain high for us, but their rule is one of kindness and praise. These are men and women who see the, the best in what we do. They recognize that a job well done, and they motivate us to do greater things by being our greatest encouragement. One of my best employers was a pastor who, who recognized the wounds that I had from a previous church that I worked at. And uh, he knew I'd been through an ordeal. 
And he was a master at capitalizing on my strengths as a young man and encouraging me to excel where I had room for a lot of growth and doing so with kindness. Well, this last two Sundays, we've been on a journey through a very difficult passage of, of uh, Scripture in, in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. It's difficult because it's, it's hard to sort out some of the details of it. It's probably one of the hardest passages in the New Testament to interpret. But it's also difficult even more so, I think, because it contains one of the sharpest rebukes and the strictest warnings in the whole New Testament. It's a rebuke against sluggishness and a warning of the irreversible discipline that some Christians will face when they fall away like the Israelites did back in Numbers, in the book of Numbers, which we looked at. It's a hard passage, and, and if you're like me, you, you've been examining your heart and finding areas of, of your Christian walk where you've, to some level, accepted um, a certain amount of mediocrity and laziness. And our God says, that's not acceptable. And many of you have been sorting through all that this last couple weeks. I've really enjoyed some of the conversations that many of us have had of you, as you've been wrestling through that passage of Scripture. And it's brought many of us to confess sin, to grow in ways that are necessary. And so it's important that we understand that we need God's discipline as His children because He loves us. We need God's discipline. We need His reproof. And His Word is perfect at cutting into the soul and to bring about healing as only God's able to do. But being the great physician that He is, He also knows how to perfectly bind our wounds and to soothe the soul. He's not a king who rebukes us and disciplines us and then follows through by throwing impossible tasks that, that none of us can accomplish. That master that says, just, just do it. Just get it done. Do it. Do it. Work. Toil. Let me find my whip. In his discipline, he loves us. And sometimes that's hard. But, but then he follows through with kindness and healing. And unfortunately, that, that picture of the slave master, that taskmaster, that boss that, that we were crushed under, oftentimes that's, I think, the picture that many of us have of our God. And we serve Him like that. We serve Him like He's that kind of employer, master, slave driver. And it's a harsh, as a harsh taskmaster, it's just waiting to throw the book at you. But instead, what we find in Scripture, the, the Lord has revealed Himself in Scripture. And He shows us that He's a King who, who does not rebuke and he does, he does rebuke and He does discipline, but, but when He does, He walks beside us then and He says, let me carry that for you. Let me hold that burden. Trust Me. Put your hope in Me. My promises are yours and, and I I am your advocate. I'm so thankful that we serve a God like this. Aren't you? One who has high expectations. But then He provides the power. And He provides the resources. And He provides, the word that we're going to find in our passage today is great encouragement. Great encouragement. That He, he desires to greatly encourage us and give us a hope that we long for, that we look forward to, a hope that is certain and sure. And He provides us the resources to accomplish His will and He fills us with great joy. 
Well, we concluded last Sunday by reading about that, the comfort that he conveys in verses 9 through 12. We're in Hebrews chapter 6, if you want to turn there with me. We were looking at verses 9 through 12, and we saw this sharp discipline, and we saw then, the, like, like a child that's just been uh, disciplined by their loving parent, he then comes alongside and says, oh, I love you. And he comforts, and, and, and after the harsh rebuke, he, he follows that up with tender words of, of what he looks forward to seeing in their lives. And so, we finished with verses 9 through 12, and I'd like to pick up there in verse 11, actually, and go back a couple verses, because these two verses at the end of last week's passage are the key to understanding where he goes in the remainder of chapter 6. Here's what Hebrews says back in Hebrews 6, chapter, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. He says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Do you hear his heart as, as the writer of Hebrews is echoing God's heart? And he, just want, he wants to encourage this, this Hebrew church. He says, do you, do you know what we really desire? Not, not that you would fall like the Israelites did at Kadesh Barnea, but that you would eagerly press on to the end knowing that your hope is absolutely certain and having and having this not, not only this hope in front of you but full assurance of this hope demonstrate he wants you to demonstrate the same kind of earnestness that has already been demonstrated in your life as you've poured out yourself in love for others as you've served others and he says, look, God sees this happening in your life. He wants you to continue to press on. He wants to encourage you to continue doing those things because he already sees what, what he's doing in your life and how that's manifesting itself. And, and he keep on going because your hope is sure. And as you continue on, continue, do so with faith and patience. And he concludes in verse 12 by demonstrating the purpose of the hope that he's given. Our hope leads us away from sluggish mediocrity but then it leads us to encouraging us to imitate those that have come before us. To encourage the faith and patience of saints who have already walked in this journey. It's faith, because without faith, it is impossible to please God. We trust Him. We believe Him. What He did through Jesus Christ is the only way to our salvation. Also, it's this call uh, it's with patience because the journey is a difficult one. Trials happen along the way. Friends pass away. We lose loved ones. People hurt us. We grow tempted. We struggle. And so it's a patient journey as we press on towards the end. The call is to imitate the faith and patience of others is really going to be put on display when we get to Hebrews chapter 11. He's going to show us example after example after example. Many of you love and have known that passage. And today, he's going to give us just a little bit of a taste of that. And he's going to take us to the first character, Abraham, which, we, which Merv just read for us. He's going to show us the journey of faith and patience of, in the life of, of this man who lived so long ago. Merv just read an account of Genesis 22 uh, when he passed the ultimate test. And he demonstrated his faith. A faith that was already there. A journey that was already happening. That God was training him and leading him and teaching him. And so this faith and patience in the promises of God were demonstrated in this man. 
Now, it's important to recognize that this text that Merv just read, it took place many years after learning to trust. This, this is a journey that's been happening for over 40 years in Abraham's life. And if you remember from our series on Genesis a few years back, um, it, it was a journey that had its ups and downs, didn't it? Um, in Genesis chapter 12, God had made His original promise to Abraham. So this isn't the first time when He makes this promise and this, this oath in the passage we just read. This isn't the first time that Abraham's received the promises. That happened 40 years earlier in his life. Back in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 15, God confirmed those promises with a covenant. And, a, and He confirmed them in chapter 17 and chapter 18. And we've seen how Abraham has already trusted God. He's already believed God. The Scripture tells us that Abraham believed God and God credited that to him as righteousness. And so his faith already exists. That relationship has already been growing for all this time. And we've also seen that Abraham had some great successes, but he also had some big failures. Remember what happened in Egypt. Remember Abimelech a few chapters later and, and Abraham's failure towards his sister. There was the incident with Hagar and the birth of Ishmael. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 22, and we're not going to review all that today and go through the details of it, but by the time we get to Genesis chapter 22, it's been some 40 years of learning to follow God's promises. And the beauty of that incident is that Abraham had learned to trust God no matter what. He had learned that when he didn't, it, it didn't really go very well. And when he did, God blessed him. And he learned to trust his God and to patiently await God's promises. And in that day, child sacrifice was a very common thing in other religions. Uh, that, that was the norm. And uh, in Abraham's day, there were many pagan religions who promoted it. And so when God gave Abraham this test and commanded him to sacrifice Isaac, who by now was probably a 16 to 20 year old man who, who knew what was going on. And he also walked by faith, if you read th through the passage. And so Abraham had no reason to doubt. If, if God commanded you to do that, you'd be going, what? what? You know, none of the other churches would do anything like that. For Abraham, everybody was doing it. And so this was common. This was the common thing of his day. He had no reason to doubt that this, would, this God would for some reason demand something similar except that God had never asked Abraham to do anything like this before and he had never demonstrated that kind of request before. But Abraham trusted that God would provide. The Bible later tells us that he even believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead even though resurrection had not been something that had been taught yet. His faith was to such an extent, and he learned those lessons to such an extent that he believed that God would bring Isaac back in order to fulfill the promises that he had made. And he believed because he had come to know that God would keep his promises. Even through his failures, God had been faithful to Abraham. And so he walked by faith. God spared Isaac, as we just read. And then God did something for Abraham that was absolutely astonishing we're used to the language so we just kind of brush through it we don't we don't really stop and see this i don't think but for abraham this would have been mind-blowing god swore not the kind of swearing of cussing and using curse words when we're angry but he swore an oath the god of heaven swore an oath to Abraham. 
Listen to how Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 summarizes it. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore. Means, I, I can say, you know, Kurt, I, I swear that I'm going to do this for you. I swear on a mosquito. <laughs> who, you know, who cares, you know? You know, doesn't, doesn't mean much, does it? So how do we put it? I, I swear on my mother's grave. Why would we do that? We're, we're swearing on something that we hold greater than ourselves. And I'm staking not only my reputation on my words, but the reputation of my mother who's still alive but hasn't died yet. Um, and so um, we, we, would, we would swear by something higher than us. We still do so in courts, don't we? You go to the court system. And, it, and, doesn't mean, and Hebrews isn't saying that, that when somebody swears, they always keep their word. Okay? But in a general sense, we swear oaths for a reason, don't we? Because it, it, it establishes that what you're about to say is the truth. And you're staking not only your reputation on it, but you are saying this is true. And so, um, so in courts, we, we have a person put their hand on a Bible and raise their right hand. I'm switching it. Probably doing all that wrong. But, but the point is, what does God swear on? Gabriel and Michael? No, He created them. The sun and the moon? He created them. There's nothing higher for God to swear on. And so, He swore by Himself. He says, I am staking the reputation of the very existence of who I am and my very character, Abraham. If I fail to keep my promise to you and fulfill this oath, then I cease to be God. And the whole universe unravels. I swear by myself. And so Hebrews says, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes and oaths, and in all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. God has made promises to Abraham. God had made had been faithful to Abraham, but now God swears an oath to Abraham. Why, why would God do that? Why would God swear an oath? He had already given His promises. He had already proved Himself over and over and over again that He does not lie. So why go so far beyond that? And I believe the answer lies back in verse 11. Again, God's desire for His people to have full assurance until the end. Here, at the culmination of Abraham's greatest test, God goes out of His way to do one thing. To encourage His servant. To say, Abraham, I am absolutely certain about these promises. And I want you to be encouraged and to press on and to know that this hope that you have is sure and certain and there is nothing in heaven or on earth that will change this. And I found that God does this. He allows us to experience trials. He allows us to experience tribulations in His life so that we can demonstrate faith and patience through them. And then as we witness His power in our lives, 
He encourages us and He reassures us. And we find in those times of testing that His faithfulness is proven over and over and over again. And that in itself encourages us towards the hope that we have that is sure. And here He did that same thing for Abraham once again. Let me show you how far over the top goes in order to encourage Abraham. Again, first of all, He swore by Himself. Okay, and we've talked about, about the oaths and, and how we do that and why God would swear by Himself rather than an angel or something He created. There's nothing higher for Him to swear on. But secondly, the oath He makes, He uses some of the strongest terminology available. He begins it with two words that translate into English, surely or certainly. You might recognize the words as amen. Um, this is true. It was a common way of, of expressing an oath to someone. And then he follows through, though, with a couple combinations of words in the original language. Literally, the, the text reads, Amen. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. It doesn't, doesn't translate into the greatest English, does it? Um, but, but here's the point of, of these figures of speech in, in the original language. What God does here is similar to when we call Him King of Kings. Why would we call Him that? Are we saying that there's a whole bunch of other kings that are under him and they've submitted to No, it's just he's the greatest of all kings. The prince of princes. He's the, the, the greatest prince of all the princes. There's no prince that is greater than this one. That's, that's what we mean when we say that. And the same thing's happening here in this passage. The repetition of the verb places this double and then a triple certainty on what God says he will do for Abraham. It, it would be kind of like me saying, falling, I fell. What do I, what do I mean by that? It, it, it means that what I'm telling you is I tripped and I fell hard and when I got up, there was an indentation in the concrete floor. I really fell. Abraham, I am really going to bless you. Abraham, I am really going to multiply your descendants. And it'll be as hard to count your descendants as it is for you to count the stars of heaven. God says, Abraham, I swear on my existence that my promise to you is certain. I promise to bless you greatly and, and I will multiply your descendants abundantly. But again, why does God do this? Why even swear an oath to Abraham at all if he's already proven that he doesn't lie? And again, I believe it is because his character is such that he desires to encourage his children so that they have full assurance of hope and thus they are able to patiently press on to the finish line. Just as Abraham did. There are some promises that God makes that have conditions attached to them. We see that throughout the Scripture. Sometimes there are promises that God makes that says, I will do this for you if you're faithful here. Or I will judge you and discipline you here if you do this. And so there are conditional promises throughout the Scripture. But, but God wants Abraham to understand, as well as for us to understand, that this promise was unconditional. A Abraham, there, is no string, there are no strings attached here. I'm going to do this. And there are unconditional promises that God has also made to you and I. And so what about us? What about you? What about me? What, what, about, what about Christians living in the church age in the 21st century? The same God who encouraged Abraham does the same for us. And, and when He makes a promise that is unconditional, 
I want you to understand that He wants you to also, He wants you to be encouraged with a full assurance of hope until the end. Look at verse 17. He goes on and he says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We've already seen the example of Abraham and his faith and patience as he waited for the inheritance of God's promises. But now, the author transitions and says, okay, that's Abraham, but now let's look at you. Let's look at the people, uh, the heirs of, pro- of the promise. Now the author is asserting that God's desire is the same for us. And that's, this is all part of the argument of Hebrews, okay? Just like he wanted this for Abraham, he wants this for you. And so the author of Hebrews is asserting that God's desire is the same for us. Well, let me ask you a few questions. Do you believe God? When... His promise, word, when His Word promises something, can you trust Him to keep His Word? Do you always faithfully live out that trust? <laughs> Have you ever failed Him? Do you ever find yourself struggling with sluggishness as He's rebuked in this last couple of passages? Oh, I feel it. Mediocrity. There's some areas where I go, oh, Lord, we need to, I need Your help. Do you ever find yourself doing things like Abraham did that demonstrate just his lack of, of faith? You, you, you know, things are going great, and then... Did God ever break a promise to Abraham even after his failures? Will God ever break a promise to you? If God states that His promise is unconditional and that no one can change His mind, do you think that you can change it anyway? Are you that powerful? What if he swore an oath on top of that? See, God desires for you to find encouragement in his promises. His promises lead us to the full assurance of hope that he mentioned back in verse 11. And now in verse 17, he mentions the heirs of the promise. Who is that? Who are the heirs of the promise? It certainly includes the Israelites, but not every Israelite was a son of Abraham, we're told later on because they, not every Israelite believed. And miraculously, what does God do? He opens it up to Gentiles, you and me. And so you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sin and believed that the Lord Jesus Christ died for you, and your faith is in Him, then you are a child of God. You are an heir of the promises. You've inherited that. And your inheritance is sure. That hope is sure. And we walk by faith and patience as we look forward to that inheritance and its fulfillment. And so you are what he's describing here in this passage if you are a believer in Christ. And listen again to what verse 17 describes as God's desire. So when God desires to show more convincingly, as if when he says something, it's not good enough, Right? As if we already don't know that He keeps His promises. And so He desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you, the unchangeable character of His purpose. In order to show it more convincingly, He guaranteed it with an oath. 
You see, God is so concerned about your great encouragement that again, He has sworn an oath entailing His commitment to the certainty of your hope. That certainty of your future, it helps motivate us away from the sluggishness that we've been talking about in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. And, and it leads us to imitate those who have inherited the promise before us through faith and patience. But that leads us to a new question. And as I read through this text over and over and over again, I was like, okay, what's, what's the oath? Are we, are we talking about Abraham? What, what's the oath here? He made an oath to Abraham, and we are heirs of the promise. But verse 18 talks about two unchangeable things. What are the two unchangeable things? And that leads us back to the key Old Testament passage of the book of Hebrews that the the author of Hebrews keeps on bringing us back to over and over and over again. Psalm 110. If Hebrews is anything else, it's a sermon about Psalm 110. So in order to understand Hebrews, you've got to understand that Psalm 110 is the passage he's preaching on. So, let me refresh our memory a little bit because God has used that passage in the Old Testament to support several points throughout the first six chapters. It's a passage that is critically important to understanding that Jesus' role both as a king and as a priest. It's a passage that He emphasizes Jesus is the Messiah and He's the King. He's the High Priest. And significantly, it's also where we discover that God made another oath. Let's look at the first four verses that are talking about Jesus. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So again, this, this is a prophecy of Jesus as the Messiah. And so far, this has all been talking about Jesus ruling as our King. As the Messiah. But look at verse 4, because I believe this is what Hebrews is referring to when it, says that God, when, it, when it states that God desires to show more convincingly to you the unchangeable character of His purpose. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's saying to Jesus. Now, now I know, this, this opens up so much for us to discuss, doesn't it? There's so much to uncover and to unpack. And the good news is that Hebrews is going to unpack all of that over the next few chapters. So we don't have to cram all that into the time we have running today. He's going to unpack what it means for Jesus to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he introduced that conversation back in chapter 5. And then he kind of paused that conversation because he had to deal with the sluggishness that they're facing and say, you guys need to wake up here. And, and so there's been this big parenthesis in chapter 6. And so now we're, we've come all the way back around and we're back to this conversation about Melchizedek, which we're going to really fully dive into next, next Sunday. But... Um, uh, we're, we're not going to cover all that today, and, and we're going to see the ramifications of Jesus being our high priest over the next several chapters, but here's the short version. God is so committed to the certainty of the hope that lies ahead for those who are genuine Christians. He is so committed to the promises of your inheritance that He made an oath to Jesus. And He affirmed that the Christ would serve as a priest, as a high priest, for eternity. Forever. And ever. 
And that means that you have an advocate in heaven already. And He will act in that capacity forever. You have someone who made the perfect sacrifice for your sins. Once and for all. That means that you have a great high priest who prays for you specifically. It means that Jesus is your eternal high priest. So according to verse 18, God provides strong encouragement for you based on two oaths. And commentators have a lot of differences of opinion on whether Hebrews, when it says two oaths, two, two things, that he's talking about Genesis 22 or Psalm 110, or maybe he's talking about both. But, but the main point is, whichever passage he's talking about, the main point is God does not lie. And He has committed Himself to demonstrating the unchangeableness of His purpose to the heirs of the promise. And then in addition to all this, He further defines who are the heirs of the promise in verse 18. He says, the heirs are we who have fled for refuge. And I, I, I've just kind of brushed through this. It's a puzzling phrase. It's kind of different. Quite, quite honestly, I, um, I just took it at face value and then I moved on the first, time, first few times I read through this. Uh, but then I was listening to a sermon by Bob Deffenbaugh uh, just yesterday morning, actually. And I, I, just, I broke out in tears. I, I heard this and I, I wept in my office yesterday. I was so surprised by it. Uh, he makes a keen observation that I think shows how this description of we who have fled for refuge is rooted once again in the Old Testament. And guess where it leads us to? Back to Numbers. We've been there before, right? Back to the book of Numbers. Now, we're, gonna, we're not going to read the details of the law, but it's found in Numbers chapter 35. He's going to repeat the law a couple times in Deuteronomy. But the gist of it is this. God commands the Israelites to give a certain amount of cities to the Levites as an inheritance. And you go, oh boy, the, the city stuff. That's, this is a really exciting passage. It, the, the, the Levites, you understand, they were a specific tribe of Israel, but they didn't receive an inheritance in the land. All the other tribes received an inheritance. These were their borders. You know, this was you know, the north border, this river. and The Levites didn't get any of that. So, boy, what do they get? He says, you're going to give them cities. You're going to give them all pasture land around those cities. And so, that way these priests were interspersed throughout the nation of Israel. And so there's lots of details that we don't need to get into today. Uh, I know you're really excited about city borders and all that stuff, but we won't. I'm sorry. We're not going to get there. So God commands the Israelites to give a certain amount of cities to the Levites as their inheritance. And a lot of the chapter just covers those details. But then, he gets into a lot of case law about these cities being called cities of refuge. And, and this, was, this was their purpose. Um, if you killed someone, then the law allowed for the executioner to take your life as punishment. The whole principle of it kind of cuts down on the number of murders in the land. Uh, but that's how capital punishment was carried out. You didn't, you didn't go to some... There wasn't this lengthy legal battle that happened. Um, you murder. The closest family member is the executioner. They called him the avenger of blood. And what would he do? And it's done. And, and that was how the law worked when it came to cases of, of murder. In Israel, I'm not saying that you have the right to go do that today. This was a national law in the Old Testament. So, so don't get any ideas. Um, however, what, what happens if you know, I'm, I'm chopping a tree and the 
X flies off and Russ is behind me. Now what do I do? Russ, I'm sorry. I, I killed him. So there's a question. Was it intentional? Was it unintentional? Uh, and so the, what happens to me now? And I, I killed the man, so according to the law, Audrey now has the full right to come after me. Or your brother. Don't, no brother, so Audrey's going to do it, okay? So what do I do? It was an accident. And so this cities of refuge was set up for specific purposes like this. And if you accidentally killed someone without intent, without malice, then you had the right to flee for refuge to one of these cities. And as long as you remained within that city, the avenger of blood could not legally touch you. And the city was your refuge. And I think that Deffenbaum may be right that, that this is what Hebrews is pointing us to. Just like the fugitive fled for refuge to this city, that was his physical salvation. We have, just like he fled to this city for his physical salvation, we have fled to Jesus Christ. And here's the kicker. In Numbers, those cities would be their refuge until when? Until the high priest died. When the current high priest died, then the person was then allowed to go back to their land. And I think that's where he's, he's not trying to get into all the details. I don't think Hebrews is trying to draw direct correlation to every detail in the law of Numbers. But it's significant that Jesus is what? What's the whole thing we're talking about in this passage? He's our high priest. And when does He die? He's walked into the heavens. And He is your high priest for eternity. And so if you are one who has fled for refuge to the one who paid for your sins on the cross, then you have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. The picture here is so beautiful. It's so secure. You are safe with Him in the city of God as long as Jesus is the high priest. My friends, it's imperative. I'm going to change my focus here. I've been talking to those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, and I recognize that some of you aren't there yet. But it's imperative that you do not leave here today without understanding that you are guilty in your sin. Just like all of us are born into. Your sin has made you an enemy of God. And there is absolutely nothing that you can do on this earth to save yourself from the wrath to come. Unless you're thinking in your mind right now that there might be something that you can do to gain God's favor, please make no mistake that the Bible declares that you are dead in your sins. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God for God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. As you have to understand that coming to church will not make you acceptable. Changing some of your attitudes and cleaning up your bad behavior, it cannot save you. Taking sacraments, saying prayers, being baptized, being, doing penance, there is not one thing that you can do to make yourself acceptable in the eyes of God. 
There's absolutely nothing that you can contribute that will change God's opinion of you or that will alter your destiny in the lake of fire. But there is a way. There is a way. And His name is Jesus. He did all the good that we could never do. He lived a perfect, holy life. He completely fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, God's requirements. He perfectly fulfilled every bit of it. And then He submitted Himself to death on the cross. We killed Him. We crucified Him. But in doing so, He paid the penalty that you couldn't pay. He paid the price that you were unable to. And He loved you that much. And so I want you to understand that when Hebrews is talking about faith, and it's talking about those who are the heirs of promise, He's not talking to people that have proven themselves to God. He's not talking to people that have somehow achieved salvation by some acts that they did. These aren't people that come to church and they're inside these walls and so therefore God says, oh, I'm going to accept that one because none of us are there. None of us. When it talks about those of faith, it is in no way referring to those who are saved by going to church or, or to those who think that somehow they will be able to, to tip the scales in their favor. And maybe my good deeds outweigh the bad ones. None of us are that good. It's not talking about, about any of that. If you are trusting in anything that you think that you can do to save yourself, then I, you, you have to understand that you have rejected the Son of God. You've rejected His way. And if you are relying on your own works, your own deeds, your own achievements, then you've rejected the free gift that He offers to you. And God saves a person when you have fled for refuge. That's the picture that He uses here in Hebrews. When you have fled for refuge to Jesus, your trust is in Him to save you from your sin and its penalty. Faith means that you have humbled yourself before a holy God. You have turned from your sin and you believe in Jesus Christ. He's it. All your faith rests on Him. And you're trusting Him to save you from your sin just as much as you're trusting in that chair that you're sitting on right now. That it's not going to fall over. You're confident in it. My friend, if you have spent your life trying to earn your way into God's favor, let today be the day of your salvation. If you're here today, let today be the day that you find refuge in Him. You don't have to raise your hand I'm not going to ask you, the whole closing your eyes, raise your hand, walk an aisle. We're not going to do that. There's no ceremony that you have to do in order to receive salvation from Him. Right now where you're sitting in your chair, the good news is that simple. You don't have to raise your hand or do anything whatsoever except believe in Jesus Christ. Right where you're sitting, Everything that Hebrews is talking about that belongs to the children of God, the inheritance of their salvation, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of new life, the hope and the encouragement that this passage declares that belongs to those that are His children. All of this belongs to the One who humbles Himself and takes refuge in Jesus who died in their place. And that belief, that trust can happen right where you're at without closing your eyes, without saying a prayer, without it's just... God, I believe. 
I believe. Save me from my sin. And heaven is moved for the one that trusts Jesus. If you've responded in faith, if, if that's something you decided now today, if that is something that you decided, I, I've, I've humbled myself before God and I've received that gift. I, I would love to be one of the first people to know about that. So please share that good news with me. Tell me before you go upstairs so that I can rejoice with you. Hebrews 6 concludes with one more picture. Verses 19 and 20. Is we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the heaven, into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so now we're full circle. We're back to Melchizedek, where he paused back in chapter five. But but he declares something here. He says, Those who have found refuge in Christ have an anchor of the soul. This is an amazing picture. He had this picture early on when we started the book about somebody who's drifting. That was one of the first warnings. was don't drift. Don't be like that ship that's sitting out there in the water and it's not anchored to anything. And so what happens at night when the storm comes? It drifts into the dock and it's destroyed. Don't do that with your faith. And so there's this picture of this anchor. And we have an anchor of the soul. Uh, David Guzik uh, has made a few observations about our anchor that are very insightful. Uh, first, he says, anchors are helpful only when they are not seen. Good point. If it's up on the dock, then I'm not doing much with it. If Jesus is our anchor, when we're waiting, be faithful. Anchors are helpful only when they're unseen. It's important to remember that we wait with patience. Second, he, he points out anchors keep one from drifting, as Hebrews earlier warned us. But third, anchors usually go down. But where is our anchor? We are anchored to heaven. Our anchor goes up. And according to this passage, my friends, understanding our anchor is, he calls it sure. Our anchor is steadfast. Your anchor is only as useful as what it's holding onto. If it's just moving around in the sand, an anchor won't hold you during the storm. But if your refuge is in Christ, then your hope is certain because Jesus Christ Himself is your hope. And with that, the author of Hebrews has brought us back to the truth that Jesus is our high priest. On earth, all the other high priests of Israel, they went through a curtain every year. They sprinkled the blood on the altar. They went through all the ceremony on the Day of Atonement. And then they'd come out and they'd have to repeat it again the next year. Over and over and over again. Our high priest went into the heavenly temple. He died on the cross and made the sacrifice once for all. He went into the heavenly temple and He's there today. He went through the heavenly curtain. The real temple. The one on earth is just a picture of the one in heaven. He went through and He's still there. And He sits at the right hand of God our Father. And so we have a high priest who makes our hope a certainty. And friends, if you've believed in Jesus, then our God seeks after your, He calls it, strong encouragement. Not, not just to encourage you. Not just to lift you up a little bit. 
not just to give you a pep talk. A lot of you have employers that try motivating you every day and give you a little encouragement. No, that, not that kind of encouragement. Strong encouragement. He's not seeking to beat you down and to terrorize you into submission. Instead, He desires for us to be strengthened and encouraged so that you might imitate those who have come before us in faith and patience. Faith because without faith it is impossible to please God. And patience because we are on a journey that we haven't fully realized our inheritance yet. He desires for you to be encouraged by the certainty of your hope. And it is a hope that is promised by a God who made an oath. A hope that is guaranteed by a God who cannot lie. And a hope that is found in Jesus, our refuge. And as long as your refuge is in Him, nothing can touch you. It's a hope that is Jesus Himself who anchors us to heaven. Father in heaven, we, we thank You for everything You've revealed here. We thank You for Your encouragement, Your great encouragement to us. We thank You that You're a God who loves us enough that You discipline us when we need discipline. And when we wander away from You, You pull us back, You reprove us, You exhort us. You correct us. You train us in righteousness. We thank You that You're a God that loves us so much. But Lord, thank You for being a God who, who puts Your arms around us and loves us and urges us to continue on knowing that the goal is before us and the finish line is there. We thank You that we are God who has made our hope sure and certain that there is nothing that can separate us from Your love. And we thank You that You are God who has given us hope. Might we live with that hope in front of us? I pray that like Abraham, we would continue in faith and patience and that we would press on as You have assured us that we will by Your grace, by Your mercy, and with the hope of heaven in front of us. Might we live these things out this week in our lives, we pray. Amen. Please stand.